Good evening. Yes, thank you. Hi, my, my name is Fumi Holonishakin. Uh, I'm a professor of security, leadership, and development at King's College London. I'm also the founding director of the African Leadership Center, which is based here at, in London and in Nairobi. Uh, it's great to have everyone here uh, this evening. And uh, I'm looking forward to a fabulous time with my friend and colleague, Professor Alcinda uh, Honwana. We, I just want to start with a couple of uh, housekeeping things. First, there's a fire assembly point, and my proposal will be that in case of emergency, and we hope that there will be no emergency, please just walk uh, straight out on either side, and staff will direct you to the appropriate uh, place. Uh, this evening, since we have just uh, one main uh, lead only speaker, we will expect to finish by 8.30. We will have uh, Professor Honwana speak for about uh, 30, 35 minutes, and then we'll have ample time uh, to have a good discussion with her. Can I just say that events here are often recorded, and we hope to produce uh, this evening's talk on podcast, and if that happens, that should be available uh, online uh, on the LSE website. May I also ask that you please turn your phones to silent mode so that we don't have any disruptions in the program. I know some people would probably want to tweet and you could do that uh, with your phone on silent mode. Let me, without further ado, introduce uh, Professor Alcinda Honwana briefly. Alcinda and I first met at the United Nations in 2001. Uh, when she was brought into that office, the office of the uh, UN Special Representative of the Secretary General for Children and Armed Conflict. She was brought into that office uh, to specifically begin to organize the research agenda work of that office. And the research agenda that was developed in that office, Alcinda not only did a brilliant job with it, she took it uh, to run at the Social Science Research Council in New York. And we have seen uh, the results of of her work. I must say that actually, uh, if you Google Alcinda, you see the, the breadth of her work, which spans the space of 25 years or more. And she has been a researcher for a long time on issues of youth. In fact, it was on this basis that she was asked to come to the office of the special representative to lead the research agenda of that office. Her talk this evening uh, will be based on her research uh, in Tunisia, South Africa, Mozambique, Senegal. And you will, I'm sure, people who have studied this subject and have been involved in uh, discourse around this for some time will have seen her two previous books, The Time of Youth, uh, which looks at uh, social change and politics, work social change and politics in Africa, and Youth and Revolution in Tunisia. That book came out uh, very uh, shortly after uh, the revolution in Tunisia and covers a, a lot of, and it's very insightful in, in very uh, many ways. Professor Alcinda uh, Honwana has been professor at the Open University and now she sits on several uh, boards advising on research. The one uh, recently in which I just joined her on is with Pasga in Nairobi. Alcinda, it's a pleasure to welcome you uh, to London but especially to have you speak on this subject. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Alcinda Honwana.
Thank you very much. Thank you for being here um, on a rainy Wednesday evening. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and I would like to thank the Department of International Development at uh, LSE for inviting me to give this talk. But my particular thanks go to my friend and colleague, Joe Handlen, who has been uh, organizing all this and convincing me to, to come uh, to LSE and uh, to give this talk. I also want to thank my good friend Fumi, old colleague as she mentioned, for, for this uh, very generous introduction. My talk tonight uh, is titled, Enough, Will Youth Protests Drive Social Change in Africa? Young people in Africa have changed governments in Tunisia, Egypt, Senegal, and Burkina Faso, and recently staged major demonstrations in South Africa and the Republic of Congo. Disillusioned young people continue to take to the streets in various African cities. But they are also reacting in other ways. Some migrate and look for opportunities elsewhere, while others are lured into joining radical organizations such as Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, and the Islamic State. Young people's transitions to adulthood have become increasingly uncertain. Economic growth in recent decades has not translated into job creation or greater equity. And the growing number of young women and men, both educated and non-educated, find themselves unemployed or underemployed. They are unable to attain the social markers of adulthood, such as a job, marriage, or a family. Trapped between childhood and adulthood, they are living in a twilight zone, a liminal space that has now become known as weighthood. But this is not just an African story. Increased youth unemployment and social inequalities in the West led to street protests in various European and African American cities. And this year, we have seen large numbers of young people backing left-leaning politicians like Jeremy Corbyn here in Britain, Bernie Sanders in the US, Podemos in Spain, and Syriza in, in Greece. And the lessons from Africa and the Global South may now be relevant to Europe and the Global North. This growing upsurge of youth protests all over the world, crystallized in the word enough, needs to be understood in the context of this generation's struggle for political, social, and economic emancipation. Young people are angry, and they are on the march across the world. My presentation this evening is centered around three main arguments. First, the majority of young people in Africa are living in weighthood, 
as soaring unemployment and social economic exclusion severely affects their prospects to become independent and carve a decent future. Young Africans are coping with weighthood in everyday life, using their wits to get by and hick out a life. They invent and fashion new ways of surviving in the margins of society. And these new youthscapes become dynamic sites for improvisation and for survival. My second argument is based on the fact that young people in Africa are also responding to the pressures of Whitewood by coming out to the streets and confronting governments at home by migrating in search of better opportunities elsewhere in Africa, but also in Europe, and by fighting alongside radical movements. Central here is that young people have lost faith in the ability of their leaders to deliver on their needs and expectations. The realities of their daily lives expose the gap between the promise of the democratic discourse on fairness, individual freedom, and prosperity, and their daily existence of marginalization, exclusion, and lack of opportunities. Moreover, young Africans are becoming increasingly aware of the complicity between local and global forces that enable corruption, impunity of those in power in their countries, and that limits the capacity of African states to uphold the social contract. My last argument is that political protest movements as one of youth responses to weighthood have already produced social and political change such as the reversal of unpopular government decisions and the fall of autocratic regimes. Such as, uh, and the fall of autocratic regimes. More significantly, these movements have prompted a fundamental change in young people's mindset, making them believe that their actions matter and that they can make a difference. Nevertheless, these movements have not been able to achieve systemic change. The young are still wrestling with how to transform the spontaneous street protests into more steady forms of political action. They understand that profound change will take time and will require action both at the local and global levels. But young people are fully engaged and appear not to be deterred by the setbacks that they face along the way. So the key question is, will this generation be able to affect systemic social change? Africa is the world's youngest continent, with the majority of its population under the age of 24 and living in weighthood. The young are forced to improvise livelihoods outside of dominant economic and familiar frameworks, 
In interviews for my book, The Time of Youth, young people described the, the extemporaneous and precarious nature of their lives in Waitwood. Young Mozambicans use the Portuguese expression desenrascar a vida, which means to hick out a living. Young Senegalese and Tunisians use the French word débrouillage or se débrouiller, making do. And young South Africans just said, I'm just getting by. These young people's actions function like Michel Disserteau's tactics or daily struggles that respond to immediate needs rather than long-term strategies designed to achieve uh, broader ends. And this is the experience of many young women and young men who engage in street vending, cross-border trading and smuggling, those who migrate illegally to South Africa or to Europe, and those who end up in criminal networks as swindlers, traffickers, and gangsters. Young women and men also use their sexuality as means of gaining a livelihood by engaging in intimate relationships with wealthy and powerful men and women, commonly known as sugar daddies and sugar mamas, for money, gifts, and access to fashionable goods. Some young people become successful entrepreneurs by repairing electronic devices, making and marketing clothing and jewelry, and doing hair and nails. Others create new artistic, musical, and performance forms, making graffiti, painting murals, writing blogs, and becoming savvy internet users. Unemployment, or unemployed and underemployed graduates are taking up jobs usually performed by less educated youths. Kate Meager's work shows that shr the shrinking economy in northern Nigeria, or the formal economy in northern Nigeria, is driving more educated young people into the informal economy, which in turn pushes out the less educated, some of whom are recruited by Boko Haram. Young people feel excluded from what they perceive to be the good and prosperous modern life. They want jobs, iPods, cell phones and tablets, jeans and designer clothes, cars and the bling they see paraded in the hip-hop movies or videos. A 20-year-old Mozambican from a very remote village in Nampula said that he's trying to follow the advice of U.S. rapper 50 Cent, get rich or die trying. Although usually a debilitating state, Waitwood opens up possibilities for creativity as young people discover and invent new ways of existing in the margins of society. These new youth spaces become dynamic sites for improvisation and survival. Henrietta Moore calls this self-stylization, an obstinate search for a style of existence or a way of being. And this process is today made much easier by the internet and its social networks. 
and young people's responses to weighthood attest to this resourcefulness. The disillusionment of marginalized young Africans has pushed them into more open and vociferous action in the national political arena. Since the 2011 events in Tunisia and Egypt, which overthrew entrenched dictatorships, there have been street protests led by youth all over the continent. From the fall of Abdoulaye Ouad in Senegal and Blaise Campahore in Burkina Faso, the contestation of constitutional amendments in Burundi and the Republic of Congo, to the students' demonstrations against fee increases in South Africa, young people have been raising their voices against the status quo. However, these movements haven't been able to effect systemic change. And increasingly, disaffected young people are looking beyond domestic politics. Some young people caught in this in-between stage become frustrated with their inability to achieve culturally recognized adulthood and seek validation elsewhere. They join violent extremist groups which provide them with an adult-like status through purpose, responsibility, financial compensation, and the belonging to something greater than themselves. In Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, as well as Salafist groups, have been recruiting young people following their disillusionment with the Arab Spring revolutions. In fact, the largest group of foreign fighters with ISIS is from Tunisia. In his book, The New Threat of Islamic Militancy, Jason Burke asserts that millions in their 20s, unable to find work or a partner, are drawn by the promise of a purpose, a thrill, and yes, sex. Fight well, make money, and get yourself a girl he says. In West Africa, vulnerable young people in Nigeria, northern Cameroon, and Niger, who lack access to school and employment, are being lured into joining Boko Haram. The same is happening in East Africa, where Al-Shabaab has been attracting young and newly converted Muslims into their ranks. Anneli Boeta, who conducted interviews with former Al-Shabaab fighters in Somalia, stated that economics and deprivation were as important, if not more so, than religious factors in explaining why Somalis joined Al-Shabaab. Certainly, the financial incentives offered by Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab constitute an important pool factor. As the recent terror attacks in Paris show, the West has not been immune to the penetration of these radical organizations that attract citizens of immigrant descent struggling with weighthood and a sense of belonging. Growing up as the other, especially when combined with discrimination and joblessness, 
can push young Europeans to seek a home where they feel they belong, feel respected and valued. It is this environment that enables radical organizations to find susceptible recruits. At least half of the attackers in the horrific Paris raids this last week or last Friday were said to be French nationals of Muslim descent in their 20s. These radical groups attract vulnerable, disaffected youth from all over the world by offering a message that neatly packages young people's frustrations with unemployment, financial hardship, social marginalization, and political exclusion. Migration has also been an important reaction to weighthood as young people leave their rural villages in search for opportunities in the cities or migrate to other countries in the region or internationally. Southern Africans have a long tradition of migrating to South Africa to work in the gold and diamond mines of Witwatersrand and Kimberley. Since the end of apartheid, young Africans from countries further afield have also been migrating to South Africa. In 2008 and early this year, we witnessed atrocious xenophobic violence by South Africans' poorest against fellow African immigrants. These attacks stressed the failure of the post-apartheid regime to address inequities of the past and create jobs. And that has instigated the horrendous victim-on-victim -victim violence. In the past few years, we have seen numerous media reports with startling images of precarious boats loaded with hundreds of desperate people trying to reach Europe illegally. It has been estimated that more than 100,000 Africans, mainly young, cross the Mediterranean in small boats to reach Italy each year. Some of these youths also understand that their weighthood situation results from domestic corruption and poor governance, coupled with a global system that makes inequality social injustice and corruption at home possible. So when young people knock at the doors of Europe, they are also saying to European leaders, we are your problem too. However, Europe does not understand this and still casts it as an African problem. At the Europe-Africa Migration Summit in Valletta last, year, last week, both European and African leaders accepted youth unemployment as one of the root causes to the current migration problem. However, most European leaders emphasized the need to repatriate African migrants currently in Europe and pushed African nations to enforce buffer zones within the continent to stop migrants from reaching the Mediterranean. African leaders showed some skepticism about forced repatriations, 
and considered the financial package offered by Europe to be too small to tackle the root causes of, the, of migration. I believe that the European Union approach, privileging repressive measures, misses the point. So long as the reasons that led to the migration in the first place are not addressed, and I mean massive unemployment, lack of sustainable livelihoods, social injustice and exclusion, and political marginalization, the migration impulse will not cease. But there is also a north-south migration by young Europeans that illustrates the growth of weighthood in the north. This migration exacerbates weighthood in Africa, especially amongst educated youths. The International Organization for Migration recently released a report indicating the sharp increase of European migration towards Latin America and Africa. For example, Mozambique and Angola's recent boom has attracted many young unemployed Portuguese graduates looking for work. In September, I was in Maputo and I interviewed some of these Portuguese graduates. I couldn't find a job in Portugal, so I came to Maputo with a group of 50 other young people looking for work in Mozambique. And these are the words of Ana, a 29-year-old Portuguese woman with a master's degree in economics. Ana is one of half a million Portuguese encouraged by their government to immigrate in the past five years. But while international migration of Africans towards Europe has lately increased, the larger migration story and much less reported remains inside the continent. As stated by Carlos Lopez, Executive Director of the Economic Commission for Africa, the bulk of Africans looking for opportunities outside their countries go to another African country. Young people have already effected significant changes, driving long-standing long dictators out of power, stopping unconstitutional presidential term extensions, and forcing the reversal of unpopular decisions. Their actions have expanded the political space for public participation and broadened the boundaries of individual freedoms, challenging the state's monopoly of the political discourse. In Tunisia, Senegal, Burkina Faso, Congo Brazzaville, for example, populations once considered calm, docile, and intimidated have opposed the status quo with great courage and assertiveness. The achievements made by these youth movements so far can be credited to three main factors. First, they present a very simple and clear analysis of the situation, one that any young citizen can understand and relate to. The choice of the name enough, 
which many of these groups have adopted, embodies the simplicity and accessibility of the message and crystallizes a common sentiment. Second, the youth movements ably use the new technologies of information and communication to their advantage. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, blogs and text messages have been instrumental to publicize events, communicate, mobilize, energize the masses, as well as expose the abuses of the regime. With the internet, these protest movements are propagated across borders in very high speed, facilitating exchanges in real time. Internet social networks also facilitate horizontal communications and obviate the need for centralized organizations with strong hierarchical structures. And third, but not least, the, stru the structures and modes of organization of these youth movements reflect a generation's deep dissatisfaction with the political system. They strive to create new forms of political engagement based on broad, decentralized, horizontal and consensus-based associations imbued with strong anti-hierarchical and anti-authoritarian principles. Nevertheless, these youth movements have been unable, as I said, to generate systemic change. Once all the regimes fall and the enthusiasm and energy of street protests wane, young activists find themselves more divided. The broad unity forged during street protests dissipates as they struggle to articulate a new common purpose and define a new political role for themselves. And traditional and more established political forces quickly move in to occupy the institutional vacuum. And often they revert to politics as usual with minor cosmetic changes. This is clearly seen, for example, in the tensions that emerged amongst leaders of the movement Sassoufi and Le Ballet Citoyen in Burkina Faso after the departure of Blaise Campaore. Leadership battles and rifts between various youth groups were publicly displayed in the media. And these facts expose the weaknesses of, of the large horizontal front that characterizes most of these movements and raises questions about their future and their role in the post-street protest phase. So far, young people have avoided the structures and political ideology that turn a protest movement into an ongoing political presence. They are wrestling to identify the appropriate structures and modes of organization towards more sustainable political interventions. There is growing understanding amongst young activists that in order to create systemic change, their struggle cannot stop 
at the national street protests, but needs to become much broader. As James Ferguson asserted, Africans are contesting their marginalization and making claims of membership to a global community. But can they really tackle the large global system that still relegates them to the periphery of modernity? Confronting bad governance and corrupt leaders at home has led young activists to understand the limitations of their leaders and national governments to effect meaningful socioeconomic change. The neoliberal paradigm has hindered the ability of weak nations to attain socioeconomic sovereignty. As many analysts have pointed out, structural adjustments programs imposed by Bretton Woods institutions to developing countries have seriously weakened the state's ability to determine national policies and priorities and to uphold the social contract with their citizenry. Indeed, neoliberalism diminished the role of the state replacing public ownership with private enterprise and withdrawing the welfare programs. Development aid is often offered with strict conditions. And those in power in developing countries build closer links with the wealthy and powerful in the north. But this is not a novel problem. Already in the 19th century, Russian author and philosopher Fyodor Dostoevsky noted the weaknesses of the modern ideal of individual freedom, freedom for all, by identifying the gap between the theory and practice of liberal individualism. He considered this to be the very torment of modernity in which individuals educated to believe in lofty, lofty notions of personal freedom and sovereignty ended up confronted with a reality that cruelly negated such dreams. Dostoevsky sharply noted that in France, as in other modern societies, the idea of liberté was a reality only for the wealthy and the powerful. Today, neoliberalism continues to emphasize individualistic ideals and expects citizens to become entrepreneurs, able to retrain and repackage themselves to face a dynamically evolving capitalist economy. But capital continually moves globally across national boundaries in search of profit maximization, leaving behind and depriving millions of people. Defeat and humiliation have become commonplace experiences for many people confronted with the strenuous global capitalist endeavor of franchising individual self and profit making. Even established liberal democracies like the United States seed with angry disillusionment across class and racial divides. 
decades of liberal social economic policies have led to a political system geared to facilitate private money making. As the Occupy movement puts it, the wealth is concentrated among 1% of the population who dominate society, while 99% struggle. Bernie Sanders, an independent U.S. senator currently challenging Hillary Clinton for the Democratic presidential nomination, echoes the sentiment by saying, the issue of wealth and income inequality is the great moral issue of our time. It is the great economic issue of our time, and it is the great political issue of our time. And like Jeremy Corbyn here, Podemos in Spain, and Syriza in Greece, Sanders is enjoying the support of large crowds of young people who feel politically marginalized and socially and economically excluded. The situation is even harder for the latecomers of modernity, those from the periphery, for whom the gap between the notion of individual liberation and the daily experience of poverty in their daily lives is even greater. The numbers of young people from Africa condemned to the waiting room of modernity have grown significantly in the recent decades. Young people's feelings of powerlessness and deprivation are exacerbated today by the ability boosted by the internet and social media to constantly compare one's life with the lives of the fortunate. For many, this contradiction has become intolerable. And that's why they are not waiting anymore, but taking their destinies into their own hands. Youth political protest movements have already started a process of social change, which has at least changed the mindset of many who didn't believe in their ability to make a difference. Youth movements like Yana Mar in Senegal, Le Ballet Citoyen in Burkina Faso, Filimbi and Lucha in DRC, and Sasufi Komsa in Gabon are working towards what they call a Pan-African coalition of youth for change, which includes links with young people in the African diaspora in Europe and North America. They understand that united, they become stronger and better prepared to face the challenges ahead. It remains to be seen whether this generation will indeed be able to drive systemic change. Nonetheless, there is no doubt that they have grown tremendously in their personal and collective realization that they can be a force for change. This weighthood generation that seems to be doomed to lurch between a sense of inadequacy and unfulfillment is reacting against the system, both at home and globally. They are coming out to the streets and protest against corruption and bad governance. They are organizing across borders. They are joining violent extremist organizations. 
They are knocking at Europe's doors and saying, here we are, we are your problem too, deal with it. Radical and systemic change will take time. It will require more organization, more structure, and a new political ideology. It might even take more than a generation, but I believe that young people in Waitwood have already started that process. As a Senegalese activist from Yanamar told me recently, perhaps my situation won't change much today, but we believe in ourselves and we will fight for our children. And I thank you very much for listening. Thank you so very much. Um, Asinda, can you hear me? Thank you so very much for that powerful lecture. I think I will hold my comments uh, until much later or, or any questions I have for you. Without further ado, let me open the floor for very, very uh, brief questions. Please introduce yourselves and then make your questions brief. I will take a first set of questions, three questions to start with, and le let me uh, revise myself from what I said earlier. I believe I said we would finish at 8.30, we will finish at 8. <laughs> Thank you. Let's have questions, please. Yes. Thank you very much for that uh, interesting uh, sharing of your Understanding. Um, I was just wondering, when you look at um, the institutions like the African Union, um, the United Nations, the European Union, um, in your view and in the view of the young people that you've spoken to, do, do, do you think they are institutions that are sustaining and driving the kind of global corrupt system and control of power? Or do you think they're actually the institutions of, of reform and distribution of power and equality? Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, you spoke about the larger social movements in, say, Burkina Faso, uh, overturning um, political regimes or the fees must fall that's that's happening in in South Africa at the moment I wondered if you could comment on kind of um, everyday actions which contribute to political change um, so like perhaps like the idea of, of non movements and and how that emerges out of something like uh, weighted or out of getting by how that's a, a political challenge yeah. thank you oh, we have the lady. Uh, professor, my question is relate in relation to a transnational um, movement of solidarity. So with movements such as um, Fees Must Fall and the current ousting of um, Missouri's pres university president in the United States, I'm wondering, do you think that there's an opening for young and mostly college-educated students to have kind of a coalition of resistance and creating, I guess, a more just world for themselves. Thank you. 
We'll come back for our next round. Alcinda, do you want to Sure, sure. This one? Yes. Uh, thank you for, for your questions. Well, in relation to African Union and these international organizations, um, young people have, you know, I, I don't know exactly what they think of these organizations as such, but um, I read an interview with one of the leaders of the Burkina Faso uh, group uh, Le Ballet Citoyen in which he was saying that the reason why they want they think it's very important to create this pan-African movement that's precisely because they don't feel the African Union is stepping up to defend them as a reformist organization um, the same for example the African Union has a youth league of some sort, but it's not connected to these movements, these grassroots movements that are uh, operating. In relation to the UN, I also know that the UN, I think it's DESA, the Department of Economic and Social Affairs, has a youth uh, uh, department or section, but also I never saw any connections to these brewing developments on the ground. I think to a certain extent, and this is not what the young people told me they think, it's my reading of it, it's that there is a distance between these global, organ uh, um, these international organizations and the, the, the movements that are going out, growing up in the, on the ground. I think there is some kind of disconnect there. Um, in terms of everyday life, yeah, that's, um, there is so much going on, and we tend to only focus on the things that make the headlines. But social change in Africa is happening on an everyday basis. Young people, by improvising, by creating these new youthscapes, by creating new forms of engaging and dealing with society, they are changing society. I'll give you an example, for example, um, I'll, I'll give you an example, not for example, sorry. Um, the way they are changing gender relations. I told you about these sugar daddies and sugar mamas. Um, young women, because they don't have means to pay for marriage rituals, they are, uh, young men and women are marrying much later. And by marrying much later, it means that young women stay in school for longer and also you know, in, start thinking about marriage in a different way. Maybe marriage is not what I want to do. It's not a way that will kind of uh, will be my, uh, let's say, uh, determine of me being an adult or something. They can find a job or have something. But young women are also, and young men, getting into these relationships with sugar daddies. And through these sugar daddies' relationships, the young women are making money, but young women are also having more than one sugar daddy. And one sugar daddy pays for the fees, another sugar daddy helps with the clothes, and another sugar daddy takes them to the clubs, for example. But they have one cell phone for each sugar daddy, because the sugar daddy gives the cell phone and the airtime so that they can communicate with them. But they use that instrumentally to not mixing the messages and keeping each sugar daddy separately. But by doing this, they become empowered because they get some control over the relationship. But some of these women are in 
triangular relationships because they have a boyfriend. And the boyfriend sometimes is forced to accept the sugar daddy because he lives on the sugar daddy as well. And sometimes the women who have sugar daddy also help pay for the fees for the younger sister to go to school or the trousers for the younger brother to be able to go to a party or to church. So in a way, young women are not in a hurry to marry quickly. And so marriage doesn't determine who they are. And in this way, relationships are changing and the way society understands those intimate relationships, the way we understand issues about boyfriend, girlfriend, jealousy, third party, start changing in that, in that very context. And I could give you several examples of that kind of non-movements that are really making, making an impact uh, on society. Um, I don't know if I understood the question about the Missouri's development. It's whether the college students in the U.S. could create also a coalition? think so. I, you know, I wouldn't know. I think so. Although um, in, in, in Missouri, from what I, what I gather, it was a question of, um, of race and the discrimination against the black students, and they didn't feel that the, the university created an environment in which they felt protected. Um, in South Africa, it was the fee increases, but uh, I, I guess, yes, why not uh, uh, see uh, young people from all over the world making the connections? Um, but what I would say is that these movements in Africa, in universities, I think they, I would link, up, link them up to this broader process of change of young people reacting in different spaces, in different arenas. And the fee increases... Uh, in, in South Africa recently and the movement that generated went well beyond the university and became a kind of a broader movement with paralyzed streets and life in South Africa for a couple of days, forcing the president, the head of state, to come out and meet with the students and withdraw the, the, the decision to, to, um, to have the fee increases. Yeah. Great. Uh, thanks, Alcinda. Let's take a next round of questions. I'll start with the gentleman there. Yes, please. And what I'll do is let me cover three questions on this side. I have three people on this side, and I will rapidly move to the center. The gentleman, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for a fascinating uh, discussion. I wondered if you could talk very briefly about the relationship between the youth movements and other social movements. I'm thinking here of organized labor movements, peasant movements, women's movements and the possibility of uh, a broader alliance really being capable of driving political change in a more systemic level. Thank you. Thank you. And to the front on this side. The two ladies. Thank you, um, thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, 
It really relates to what I've been doing this summer. I've worked for an NGO in Tunisia called Tunact um, that organizes a yearly youth parliament. And I've actually read your book on Tunisia and used it a lot, very happily. Um, I also showed it to a bunch of uh, Tunisian um, young people who were very interested in the topic and um, started looking for this book online, but um, for other problems, they couldn't buy that. Um, but in any case, um, I was wondering um, whether uh, more formalized initiatives like um, the NGO that I worked for that organizes a yearly youth parliament and tries to uh, forward these resolutions um, to the national parliament to get more systemic change, whether they, in your view, currently contribute to a more systemic change and how they do that. Um, because from experience and also from what I've read in your book, I've seen that there are many, many NGOs that start up in Tunisia trying to bring about this change for youth. And I was wondering um, in what way um, do you think that um, more formalized uh, institutions can contribute to this? Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Professor Honona, for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. Uh, my question concerns uh, the issue of migration and when migration becomes a problem, when it's considered a, pro pro a problem. And I'll give two examples here. One is from Kenya, where I am from. And w the government invests in training nurses and doctors, and particularly in training nurses. But then every year we have a huge interest or a huge sort of enticement for nurses to migrate to Europe, to migrate to, the, to North America to go and serve the aging society. That is not being considered as an issue, as a problem of migration. And the second one is the issue of young girls migrating, not just young girls, but young men and, uh, and women migrating from the East African countries to the Arab countries for labor. And this specifically, there is a program within the Ministry of Youth now, which is a department within the, the Ministry of, uh, of Devolution in the in the Kenyan government, sort of encourages young people to move to Arab countries and work there. And I remember last year on a flight from Nairobi to Addis Ababa, on this flight which was full of these 19, maybe 19, 20-year-olds, these girls straight from high school, and they were so excited about being on a plane for the first time, but they were moving to Arab countries to work as house girls. And of course, we've been seeing all these stories on the media. However, this is not being considered as a problem of migration because perhaps they're not migrating to their country, so it should become a problem. Maybe you could give us some comments on that. Thank you, Thank you very much. Can I get a sense of who else has questions on this side? You can take a few, one yes, more. Yes, I think I'll take uh, one more, please, from the gentleman. Thank you very much, Prof. Um, I liked your sort of dimension on the Boko Haram um, in northern um, Nigeria, especially given the school of thought you had come from, the uh, political and economical inequalities in northern Nigeria. And um, given the perspective of that only the military option is being used at the moment, what sort of thoughts do you have in terms of short to long-term strategies for mitigating against these economical and political inequalities in northern um, Nigeria? Thank you. Asinda, maybe you. Okay, I just want to take these. Um, uh, the relationship between youth movements and other movements. 
That's a very important, uh, a very important uh, um, uh, question because when I, when I look at the Tunisian experience, I think what made possible the Tunisian revolution and the change was the alliance between the youth movement and the trade unions and the lawyers and the journalists association. So there was a broader civil society coalition, but it was a process that started with young people. And specifically, young people from the most underprivileged areas in Tunisia. Because it's not that the youth movements are also just that broad. They can become broad, but in Tunisia, it was an, an alliance of the grassroots from the Sidi Bouzid and more de deprived areas of the country with the cyber activists, which were middle-class kids from Tunis. So when the riots, or when this young man was, uh, was uh, emulated himself down in the south in Sidi Bouzid, the cyber activists who had already started the process of their own descended to Sidi Bouzid and brought the story to the world through the internet and created this alliance with underprivileged kids from the interior of the country. So there is on the one hand different alliances of different uh, youth, but there is also alliances between youth movements and broader civil society organizations. And in places where that process is possible, that's when the, 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 the protest really takes a step up. And the same happened in Senegal, when Yanamar allied itself with a number of NGOs and they created that coalition, Mouvement 23 Juin, if, I'm, if I recall collect, correctly. This was after they blocked the constitutional amendments to give Wad, Abdullah Wad, the possibility of a third term and making his son, Karim Wad, mm. uh, uh, vice president so that he would succeed his father. And so that was June 2011, before the elections, the 2012 elections. So there was this alliance between Yanamar and a number of civil society movements. The same in uh, uh, recently, but they were not very successful, in, in Congo, Brazzaville. The youth started the process, but the opposition joined the youth against the extension, uh, the, the referendum to change the constitution for Sasson Gesso, president of Congo Brazzaville, to run for a third term. The referendum went on. Um, what they say is that the president had a lot of money and was able to buy support that uh, really, um, and the police came heavily on the, on the on the protesters. And it's interesting in Congo that the president is called Sasu Ngeso, and the slogan of the movement was Sasu Fi, because Sasu Fi in French is enough, and so Sasu his name, and so the, the slogan was Sasu Fi. Well, we will see if Sasu Fi, because so far he's hanging in there. But um, um, I think uh, you raised an important point. I think the, the, those alliances are, are important because young people cannot work in isolation. I think it has to be a broader civil society coalition. Um, in Tunisia, the NGOs, I think it's the same thing. And what is interesting in, in Tunisia is that young people 
have become disillusioned and the broader front is not there anymore. The cyber activists are doing their thing. The, the, the unemployed from the interior, they went back into their normal life. Unfortunately, or whatever the situation is, many of them were, um, or some of them, were recruited into Salafist groups and joined uh, uh, because they became so disillusioned with what happened. Employment and uh, uh, sustainable livelihoods did not happen in their areas. They continue as poor as they were in 2011, and so they are reacting against that. And also there is a big disillusionment with uh, Esepsi's government uh, um, and uh, all the crisis that has been going on in that government, the alliance with another, which was the Islamic Party, and the fact that a group of more liberal wings, of, the more liberal wing of Nida Tunes decided to withdraw completely from parliament. And apparently, if things did not change in the last week, apparently uh, Nida Tunes, which was the party that won the elections, is, doesn't have the majority in parliament anymore, and the, the Islamists have because of the rifts within, within that group. But what is happening is that those young people have created small organizations that they call associations. And in Tunisia, it's very easy to do that because Ben Ali, in his time, he created, I think it came also before Ben Ali with Abib Bourguiba, they created the Maison de Jeune. Maison de Jeune is the house of uh, young people or the young people's club. And so there is a tradition of going into a Maison Jeune and getting together, although the Maison Jeune was for cultural activities and things like that, but young people congregate together in those Maison Jeune. And so through the Maison Jeune, they create new associations. And um, there is um, a, a number of, there are a number of associations that are now monitoring how parliament works and checks and balances with parliament, putting all the discussions of parliament public online. There are groups that are monitoring, for example, the, the voting record of parliamentarians and putting, making it public information, uh, fighting for better governance. There are groups that are working on women's empowerment, etc. And so, in a way, these are organizations that are there but are also doing what you mentioned about non-movements of kind of daily actions, part of, uh, of political engagement, daily political engagement that will change society. And those changes are happening. We might not see them now. They might not be so um, visible, but, but they are there. And I think the most important thing is that young people are engaged, although disillusioned, some of them, but they are, they are engaged. And, uh, and there is a lot of, uh, of uh, very strong young leaders emerging. I was reading a couple of weeks ago an article by in Jeune Afrique that had um, uh, biographies of emerging young leaders in Africa that have been kind of a, uh, being at the forefront of these political protests and things like that, telling us a little bit who they are, where they come from. And one uh, thing is that many of them are musicians, rappers, because they can draw 
large crowds. They are already popular, but there are also lawyers, journalists, and um, grassroots people who are really fired up and, uh, and engaged. Um, migration. Uh, yes, you know, there is a lot of, um, you know, when it's migration of nurses and people who will make a difference in a particular place, it's not a problem because those people can be immediately kind of uh, uh, fit into the system. Um, but the problem is the non-educated and kind of massive migration that is kind of creating problems and worrying leaders, uh, especially in Europe. And that was the reason for this big summit, because in a way Europe is losing control of the migration flows that usually it, has, uh, it had control. Um, but in a way, societies are always built on migration. People migrate in bad times, in good times, for professional opportunities, uh, etc. And uh, the other type of migration you mentioned of uh, girls going uh, from East Africa into Arab countries or East Africans going to Arab countries, it's also migration for work opportunities as the southern, um, uh, South Asians going also to the Gulf uh, because those rich countries have a lot of... Uh, uh, um, job opportunities for these young people. But there is also exploitation, there is also trafficking. Some of the girls go as if they were going to be domestic workers but end up in very bizarre and strange uh, networks, etc. So that is also part of the, the broader issues on, on, on migration. Yes, that's all I can say really about that. And um, Northern, Nigeria. Northern Nigeria and the long-term strategies. Um, I think militarization, definitely not the option, because we have seen, and that is not the problem. The thing is that it's unequal development, and that is a region that produces so much wealth but doesn't see that wealth. So it's a question of creating an environment in which people have opportunities, people don't feel excluded, and people can participate in the development of their own, their own societies, their own region, etc. And, um, and I think this is something that uh, the Nigerian government has to understand. It's, it's not through militarization, it's not through kind of a repressive measures. Um, but it's Nigerian government, but it's also the companies that operate there. But the primary responsibility is the government that have to put regulations, has to create uh, 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 the proper mechanisms to ensure that there are opportunities for uh, young people and, and, and locals in, 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 in the area. But I think multinationals and those who also engage in those areas have a responsibility. And I also think that corporate social responsibility as it's dealt with now, it's, it's not really making a difference because each company does what it, what it wants, whether it fits in a bigger plan or doesn't fit. So there is no broader strategy to tackle the problem. But I think it's engaging the young people themselves as well in the conversation mm. and making them part 
of, uh, of, of the conversation that will start showing some uh, new directions to deal with it. Okay. Thank you. I, I think this will be my final round of questions, we are, but we'll try and take what we can. Can I? Yes, please. The lady on this side. Thank you. First, second, third. I think we can take four or maybe you, But please be brief so sure. that we can get as much in as possible. Thanks very, thank you. Thanks very much for a very interesting talk. Um, my question is on your views on the role of the media uh, in the different African countries, potentially in perpetuating the current weighthood or the role they could play in tackling the, the root causes. Thank you. The role of the media, of the media. Uh, in the, perpetuating? Uh, yeah, potentially perpetuating the current uh, situation of weighthood for young people and potentially the role they could play in tackling the root causes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I had a second hand here. Okay, can we come to the front and take uh, Maureen's question and then walk our way to the back? Thank you. Um, thanks. I, I want to come back to the issue that someone, you raised over there about migration and doctors and nurses. And I, a question and an observation. The question is, are any of the youth movements addressing... Um, the disastrous situation in, in public services, such as the health system. Um, because I've never come across one that actually addressed that. And one of the, the, this is the observation, one of the reasons for some of the migration is, the, is that the health service disasters turn into an opposition between people who struggle to work in them, in often dreadful conditions, mm -hmm. Um, people who are very angry with them because of how bad they are. Um, and that is undoubtedly one reason why people move, is they don't feel they can do a good job. So it may be formal work, but it's not working. And I just wondered if there are any movements around that. Thank you. We'll go back to the middle here. I'm deliberately not looking to my right now, not for any political reasons. <laughs> but I thought I gave a lot of chances. Yes, please. Uh, do you see differences between the youth movements that explain uh, why some have had more success in affecting political change than others? Uh, so Burkina Faso compared to Burundi, for example, or is this explained by other factors that aren't to do with the youth movements? Thank you very much. I think behind, yes, there's the lady behind at the very back. Thank you for an interesting talk. Um, my question is also about migration, but it's the opposite migration that you mentioned earlier on. For instance, the Portuguese graduates that are moving to, to Mozambique. My question is, what do you think is the long-term social impact, especially for the young people of Mozambique who are graduating from the local universities and will want to also get the same jobs that the Europeans who will traditionally be naturally assumed to be more qualified because they're trained in Europe coming into Africa, especially given the traditional relationship between Portugal and Mozambique. Thank you very much. Actually, that was going to be my question to you, so someone has asked that question on my behalf. <laughs> Can we take one last one? Yes, please. I, I'm sorry. I, sorry about that. Um, just before you started your um, talk, um, I was reading an article in, in The Guardian about how South Africa's youth turned on the parents' generation. But that actually covered the Rhodes Memorial 
um, where they got rid of Rose Memorial. And that was actually a lot about identity, about being black in South Africa um, and, and losing their black identity as well as socioeconomic um, uh, factors as well. And so that puts a slightly different uh, slant on it, which is interesting. Um, and I wonder if that applies also to other youth movements. Thank you. Actually, then maybe we could give the gentleman one last word. Uh, oh, was there somebody there? I'll take the lady before the gentleman. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you for your talk. Uh, my name is Chama. My question really is, what makes this movement any different? And um, what happens next? Um, why I ask this is because um, if you look at the history of Africa, at least to some extent, what I know, in the 70s and 80s and probably the 60s as well, we had some sort of unrest and there were some changes, but it was in the form of coup, coups, uh, military coups. And I'm wondering, uh, is it a case of um, that was what they had, the instrument they had then to make the changes compared to what we have now? Because now we're using, there's a media and all of that, but then you're still seeing the young people making those changes and also how do you look at the issue of ideologies and realities in those changes that are happening right now? Um, are we really considering what we're trying to change or are we, is it just a case of the bandwagon just try and do what you can do and not really thinking about the actual impact or effect of what you're trying to do? I don't know. Was there a lot of questions? Well, yes. I'll try. A I, lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> and yours is what? 15 seconds? Well, <clears throat> so if you have time to answer this, you answer it. Okay. Let's hear what the... Thanks very much. Um, my question is about um, the Pan-African Youth Movement you're talking about and also um, the involvement of youth in diaspora to work with um, Pan-African Movement guys. Uh, my question is, considering the fact that um, the Internet is um, a very potent tool for dissemination of information, and we all know that... Um, all these corrupt leaders, they're actually clamping down on the use of internet, knowing fully well that we've, you know, with clamping down of all these um, gadgets, they would be able to gag uh, the youths in Africa. So what do you think um, the way forward will be? Thanks. Thank you. I've seen there are many questions and only 12 minutes to answer them, but you have a menu of, you have a yeah, menu of questions. I can some of them to okay. get. Thanks. Um, the media, um, and maybe I'll connect those two, the internet and the, and the media, and the role of media. Um, what, what's happening is that young people are developing their own channels, and blogs and uh, uh, tweets, and, uh, you know, it's, it's where they get their information and... Uh, and, and often the mainstream media is trying to catch up with things that they, already, uh, they are already talking about. Uh, but I think that there is a role. There is a role for mainstream media. For example, when there are important events um, of young people that um, um, the media has a kind of a fair, um, uh, a fair portrayal of what was going on. And it's not a media that it's kind of responding to what the establishment wants to hear. Because I remember in Mozambique, I was there in 2010 when there were the riots, the food riots, 
um, only one uh, television channel was kind of showing in di uh, directly what was happening. The other channels continued to show uh, football, da -da -da, because it didn't interest the government to show exactly what was going on. And later on, someone from the government came and made a speech and said, no, it wasn't a big problem. It's just a little group of uh, uh, bandits and um, troublemakers, etc. But uh, so the media if, uh, uh, can really play a role uh, in that sense. Um, the clumping of um, Internet, you know, young people are really the savvy users of the Internet. In Tunisia, the government did what they did, but they managed, they bypassed it, they used proxy sites. For example, Tunisian cyber activists teamed up with this international organization of uh, hackers, Anonymous, and it was with Anonymous that they hacked Ben Ali's internet site and email, the Ministry of Defense, the Central Bank, and put all the information out. So they outmaneuvered them. So in a way, I think this generation masters the internet in ways that, uh, you know, they can, they can find ways of, uh, of, uh, of dealing with, uh, with that. Um, in Mozambique, it wasn't the internet, but it was the uh, cell phones. Before anybody could get a cell phone and register it, um, I don't live in Mozambique, but when every time I went there, I have my cell, Mozambican cell phone, and I would just go and start using. But I can't do that anymore. Every time I go, I have to register it, and locals who buy have to register, because the government wants to have control over who sends the text, who instigates, so that they can go to person A, B, and C, and say you go to jail because you are a troublemaker. But governments are really afraid of these troublemakers. And uh, just to tell you a story which I think is very interesting and important, linked to this kind of pan-African group, the head of Philimbi in DRC invited Diana Mar, Le Ballet Citoyen, and a number of other youth movements for a workshop in Kinshasa in March this year. Um, when the groups arrived, uh, Yanamar and the Ballet Citoyen, I think they arrived the same day in Kinshasa. Uh, President Kabila had them jailed and canceled this workshop in the name of threat to national security. <laughs> so, um, and there was no meeting and they had, they, some of them were released later on. Some of the Congolese are still in jail today, uh, but the group managed to meet somewhere else, etc. So young people are really reacting to this and, and are finding uh, ways to, to, forge, to forge ahead. Um, migration uh, and doctors and nurses and youth movements, Maureen. No, I, uh, think, I think that's the migration from... No, she Portugal. was linking to... Uh, no, before the migration to Portugal. Uh, right, right. She was linking to... Okay. You know, I don't know of any youth movement looking at health issues per se. Uh, I don't know if it's because young people, they don't kind of regularly go to... Unless they're very sick, they go to hospital. And now in many places, even in Mozambique, where um, health care was free, now you have to pay. 
And so you don't have the money to pay, and you just go when you really, really, you really need it. And so I don't know if there is this direct engagement of young people with healthcare system. Um, I haven't seen anything. But what I have seen is a reaction of young people, for example, against um, uh, bad services in terms of transportation, the cost of bread, um, you know, um, the price of the matatus or the shapas, as we saw, those combis, and those things, they, they have been reacting to that. Uh, but the healthcare, I haven't, I haven't seen. I might say that AIDS, HIV AIDS, organizations of young people that support uh, AIDS education, AIDS prevention, HIV uh, prevention, and things like that, that I have, that I have seen in South Africa and uh, many other places in Mozambique as well. The migration um, of the Portuguese. In fact, I had a focus group discussion with a group of Portuguese uh, graduates separate because the groups don't mix. The Portuguese have their own life and they're creating their network in Maputo. And then a group of Mozambicans, educated Mozambicans who would be competing for the same type of job. And I asked, but how do you see this? And uh, what the Mozambicans were telling me was that, you know, we also have our uh, problems here. If these Portuguese are coming, they're taking out our jobs that are exacerbating our unemployment problems and resolving the Portu Portugal's unemployment, youth unemployment issues. And especially because this is not by chance. It's not that these young Portuguese they just decided one day pack and go to Mozambique. It is a strategy supported by the Portuguese government. The Portuguese government created a program that is called Inov Contact. Inov Contact, it's a program funded by the European Union that gives grants for young Portuguese uh, no, uh, uh, younger than 30 years old with a graduate degree and unemployed at the moment they apply to get a grant to go and work in a Portuguese company in Mozambique, in Angola, in Brazil, somewhere else. And the government pays for the airfare and pays for six months internship at no expense to the company. And the deal is that the company will then absorb the Portuguese graduate or the Portuguese graduate will find a way of getting a job there in the country. And there is another thing which is interesting, is that the Mozambican government has some regulations about how many foreign employees a company can have, a foreign company can have. So for example, for each foreign uh, employee, you have to have five Mozambicans. And when they, get when they get the foreigners, and because they don't want to get the locals, because in the perception of the Portuguese company, the Portuguese graduate comes from a better university in Europe, is better than a Mozambican, what they do, instead of employing the, the graduate directly, they suggest that this graduate creates an independent company and they hire him or her as service provider rather than employee. So loopholes through the system that perpetuate this kind of influx of Portuguese graduates 
to these companies. And the responsibility is of the Mozambican government as well. And these young Mozambicans I, I, I spoke to, they are seeing the problem and they say, this is happening and our government is not protecting us. Mm -hmm. And the other thing they said, and I think I wrote it somewhere in, a, in another paper about this issue, was that one of the Mozambicans turned out and said, you know, everyone is praising Germany because Germany is accepting all these immigrants and has larger quotas than other European countries. But we are receiving all these Portuguese with uh, open arms. We're not doing anything. And so we should be considered heroes like the Germans as well. <laughs> and I said, well, you're right. But it has, it has long-term long uh, effect, mm -hmm. and especially because if you look at colonial history and all that happens, and if these groups are not mixing up and not integrating into Mozambican society, it will have detrimental consequences um, uh, further, further down, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the Rhodes Memorial, is it that? I'll try quickly. It is another angle and an important one. And I think all those issues are mixed. The issues of identity, of who we are, where do we belong. And in the same way that the South Africans were looking at, you know, roads must come down and the identity and the blackness of being a South African was also linked to the fee issue because the fact that the black South Africans can afford to go to university, that's because the fees are low. If you increase the fees, only certain South Africans can continue to have access to university. But it can also be linked to ideas about a sense of non-belonging or displacement of, of uh, Europeans of immigrant descent here in Europe in the fact that they feel that they feel like the other. They feel that they're not integrated and they become uh, vulnerable and disillusioned and, uh, and in search of some kind of uh, uh, identity and who we are. Are we uh, Europeans? Are we uh, Africans? Are we Asians or whatever? I think it's all part of the same struggle of who we are and who do we become and what are the possibilities in terms of future, etc. Right. Let me first thank everyone uh, for attending this and especially say thank you to those who asked the questions for your fascinating and brilliant questions and thanks for, answering my, for asking my question. I won't have had time to ask it. <laughs> Um, thank you very much. But on this note, I would like us to say a big thank you to Alcinda.